Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast by People Management. My name is Emily Burt and over the next half hour, I'll be exploring all you need to know and plenty of things you don't about this month in HR, including an expert panel crunching the numbers on the gender pay gap, a trip to a mystery location to meet a person who really raised the bar with an HR career change, and Tim Pointer, once again here to answer your questions in Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. So it is March, spring is in the air, and we are recording just ahead of the government gender pay reporting deadline for UK organisations. And today I'm sitting down with two people who know more about it than most. I'm joined by Charles Cotton, who is a Senior Policy Advisor for Pay and Reward at the CIPD, and Tali Schlomo, who is People Engagement Director at the Chartered Insurance Institute. We're going to talk about what all of this means and what's going to happen next with gender pay reporting. So hi, both of you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Charles, I know you've been keeping careful tabs on the gender pay reporting process. What's going on with the reporting? Well, to date, around one in four organisations have reported. The government estimates that there's around 9,000 organisations with more than 250 staff who would be obliged to comply. At the moment, about a quarter of them have. So I expect to see a sudden rush over the coming days as more and more organisations report on their uh, on their gaps. What are the most common misconceptions that you encounter when you talk to people about the gender pay gap? So I think the first one is um, it's not equal pay. Right. And that's really important to understand. And I think we, we need to spend some time explaining the difference between gender pay gap and equal pay. Gender pay gap is really about... It's measuring the difference between what the male and female average earnings are as a whole organisation, where equal pay is about like-for-like roles or the equal value of the role. And they're two different things, and that's quite important. Anything to add to that, Charles? No, I mean, if you look at most organisations who have reported, they do start by saying equal pay and gender pay gap reporting are two separate mm. things, and um, not to confuse the things. Um I think the issue is how organisations are kind of explaining why there is a difference and what they're doing to um, reduce that. So it can be things like, why aren't there more women in senior roles or why aren't there more men in junior roles? We are now almost a year into the gender pay gap reporting process and we are getting very close to the deadline now. When this was introduced by the government, what do you think they were hoping to achieve? I think it's all about equity and fairness. If we look at the Taylor Review... It's about modern working practices and pay is one element of that. And I think what it enables us to do is we've got the living wage and that's a great tool to start that platform. But gender pay gap creates a different perspective and a different lens to Mm. uh, the Taylor Review and modern working practices. So it's it's all underpinned by equity and fairness for the roles that we do in, in society. Charles? Well... If we can increase the pay of women, that will lead to more income tax being paid and national insurance being paid Mm. going into the government's coffers. They can reduce the amount of money that they're having to spend on benefits for those people who are in work but don't earn enough. And obviously it will give a boost to women who are trying to save for their retirement because they'll be able to afford to pay more into their pensions. Mm. Also, if individuals think they are being paid fairly and they are having their achievements recognised they're going to be more productive. Mm -hmm. There's been various research from people like McKinsey showing the importance of having a diverse workforce and the positive impact that can have on performance and productivity. So firms will become more productive and they'll be able to pay um, women more. 
And also you will start to see, I think, more people being engaged as well mm. about what the organisation is trying to achieve and how it's doing that. I think it's great to have a debate because once you start to have a debate or a conversation over time, it turns into actions yeah. and outputs and we've got to start somewhere. So it's a great place to start. Yeah. I think over time you, what you might potentially see that is that we'll start to report on the gender pay gap in ethnicity. Yes. And that will also be, you know, the intersectionality of diversity and inclusion is quite an interesting area that we should all start to talk about more and more so. And gender pay gap is a place to start. And I think... We, we talk about women saving up for retirement. I think the protection gap is absolutely critical here. Um, if there's a significant gap between what women potentially earn from men, well, the impact long term is quite significant. If companies fail to meet the deadline, what could that potentially mean for them? How do you enforce something like this? Well, I think there's two issues. One is the public relations um, disaster that these organisations will probably face mm-hmm. from their investors and from their um, employees and from their customers and clients. And secondly, the EHRC, who's the regulator, they're going to be tracking down those organisations who haven't complied and contacting them. In the first instance, it's going to be a kind of a friendly nudge about why haven't you and have you had any problems and let's work through it. But if organisations aren't still complying, then they're going to find themselves in court. Mm. And I think it's going to be a lot cheaper for them to publish their gender pay gaps then being dragged through the courts by the regulator. So of the companies that have reported, we've seen a lot of uh, mixed responses to this, particularly in the media, and we have seen some fairly large media storms. The one that immediately springs to mind is, of course, the BBC, which got raked over the coals among, you know, on a national level first for the pay disparities between its male and female on-screen stars, and then with uh, the editor, China editor Carrie Gracie's resignation at the beginning of this year. Now, despite the fact that this is actually not about gender pay so much as equal pay. It has been part of this gender pay dialogue. Why do you think that is? So equal pay is like for like role or equal value. Yes, the BBC is a really good example of that. So um, we've had some journalists or broadcasters or actors who have, we've been quite clear that uh, what we may as the public see as equal value Obviously, those that we are within the corporation haven't seen that. Mm. Um, And I'm sure they're going out for internal review and processes to identify what those outcomes are and how they can mitigate those differences. But gender pay gap is not equal pay. Gender pay gap is about taking the organisation's average, median and mean earnings. Obviously, the gap could be due to problems with how people are rewarded within an organisation. So it's important that when you do start analysing the reasons for the differences, that you do look at carrying out an equal pay audit as well. And there has, as you say, been a lot of publicity around this topic. I mean, was it yesterday there was the issue around uh, the person who played the Queen in The Crown mm-hmm. getting less Claire than... Foy. Yes, yes, getting absolutely. a lot less than the person who um, played her husband. Matt Smith. Yes. yes. So we've talked about the reporting process and kind of where we are at this stage. Now, as obviously the deadline nears and as we pass this deadline, the important thing now and the big thing is going to be looking forwards to the future. And Charles, I know that you have previously told me in a former interview that actually, you know, the gender pay gap doesn't matter. And Tali, you said this at the beginning of our session here today. The gap itself doesn't matter so much as what you do with it and what your intent is to do with that moving forwards. So, Tali, what do you expect to happen as the result of gender pay reporting and for organisations who 
do have good intentions and who want to close that gap, what are the things that they can start doing? So it's really putting together the action plan and I'm sure many organisations have done that as part of their narrative when disclosing their gender pay gap. And that, you know, it's keeping it simple yet effective Things like mentoring. Um, how or how many organisations have mentoring programmes, be it informal internally or through uh, an external organisation for women? However, I'm also looking at it from an inclusion perspective. So for everyone, particularly those who are not at management level yet and are aspiring as part of their career development. So we've partnered with 30% Club and we're, we're, we've got some ladies who are joining the mentoring program on that. And it's a great tool to start the support of um, career progression. Reverse mentoring actually is also critical in this scenario because those who are senior leaders need to connect with those employees and colleagues in the organisation that aspire to be promoted. And particularly the the generation coming in, the millennials, um, they, they work in a very different way and they like transparency, they like instant feedback. And I think it's great to connect the senior leadership team with colleagues across the organisation so that we can learn from that and then we can put interventions in place. Charles, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's, I suppose, two broad reasons why a gap exists. One is, you know, what's going on in your workplace in terms of how you reward or recruit or develop employees and what's going on outside the workplace. Now, I don't think organisations are passive actors in this regard. They can make um, an effort to go out and talk to society about things like what kind of qualifications that's in demand at the moment, going out to schools and challenging stereotypes around subjects and topics and you know what constitutes um, a job for the man and what constitutes a job for women. Talking to your local MP or lobbying the council saying, well, one of the issues is around the availability of, of affordable, high-quality childcare. Yeah. You know, we this is something that's important to help us reduce the gender pay gap. We can't do it ourselves. We can't, it's not going to be f- um, practical in our workplace to set up a creche or a nursery, so we need to kind of think about what you can do to, to, to help us in that regard. And similarly, with a, you know, an ageing workforce, it'll be a case of, you know, what about elder care? What can um, government do there? So again, it's um, not just looking at um, internal issues, but looking at things as outside the organisation, what you can do. So things like um, um, apprenticeships, a great way of getting people into the organisation. Um, similarly, um, sponsoring um, people to do qualifications. So apparently there's not enough female engineers, not enough female economists. So what can we do to encourage that possibly through bursaries and sponsorship? And I think the concept of male and female jobs now need to be challenged. Um, mm, absolutely. It starts at the age of five that there already seems to be a conscious decision by um, young girls that there are female and male jobs. So we have, I think, a duty to work with schools and society to start to look at there, there is a job for everyone. Um, there is, it's not gender role driven. It is skill set driven. It is aptitude driven. It is uh, driven by passion and your own desire. And qualifications is absolutely critical in that piece. Um, And I think, again, uh, we have a role to play to uh, talk about qualifications, um, be it in organisations that can sponsor your development, but also uh, as early as a a school. 
All right, so we're going to wrap this up now, but just I'd like to ask each of you, um, for organisations out there who have reported or for organisations that are still just kind of rushing to get their final narrative in place, Charles, what is the one key bit of advice that you would give to organisations for the next step? The next step is thinking about um, how you're going to deliver on your action plan. So if you said you're going to be doing these things, let's start to see concrete activity in that um, and, of course, kind of monitoring. What I want to see is, you know, greater inquisitiveness about why things are happening. Start to reflect on, well, what are we rewarding, why and how? Um, the organisation and the economy and businesses are changing so quickly. Often jobs have failed to keep up. Are we still valuing jobs in the right way? If we're using a job evaluation scheme, are the factors still applicable anymore? Um, so it's a case of just keep revisiting over and over again those issues about what we're rewarding, why and how, and hopefully um, that will start to deal with the unjustified gaps between men and women. Tali, same question. The narrative, keep it simple yet effective, and consider what you'd like to achieve by this time next year, um, and that will really help galvanise some actions to take place. My thanks to Charles and Tally. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Over the last few months, HR professionals have been sharing their career origin stories on social media, charting their path to the profession with the hashtag MyPathToHR. This made me wonder if there were any practitioners out there who had decided the profession was not for them and taken a leap in an entirely different direction. This question took me to the Swan, a 17th century inn located in the village of Markyate, where I met John Howcroft Stemp. I did a lot of things from a typical kind of business partnering, um, and then I worked my way through, and when I left the organisation, I was running all of the shared services functions, and I was the group resort recruitment director for Lloyds Banking Group, all of the advice and guidance, disciplinary grievances, the central team looking after all of those. And one of the things that kind of ultimately led to me leaving the organisation was managing the exit of um, thousands of people, unfortunately, as a result of the changes in the banking sector as well, where we had to rationalise. Um, so it was a pretty chunky job in HR. Um, for yeah large organisation um, so that was kind of where I ended up and that's where I took the jump from. So it sounds like you've had an unbelievably varied career. Very varied. What was it that drew you to human resources in the first place? I think when I was uh, running large operations, I still wanted the ability to be able to influence the way that people were managed, treated, encouraged, rewarded at work. And whilst I could have done that in my area that I was running, so it was a few hundred people, which was great, and for a lot of people that's what they would want to do, the ability to do that in a much broader environment um, was great, and you were able to do that in an HR function. So I decided to kind of take that lead and have a greater influence and in a way be the conscience of the organisation. That's kind of what I wanted to be and that's where I ended up in terms of managing all of those um, kind of exceptions, disciplinary grievances and some cases, because then you can make sure the right thing is done. And now you run a pub, 
So was this always a pipe dream, working in a pub, or is this a complete swerve into the unexpected for you? I'd always, you know, you, you have a dream, don't you? You're going, oh, I have the idea of the little tea shop and everything. And for yeah. me, you know, the tea shop was there, the little restaurant was there, the pub was an option. Um, and I never kind of really knew where it would lead. And probably in, in, in my mid-30s, you kind of begin to let, let go of that dream because you just think, well, it's never going to happen now, is it? You know, you end up in the organisation, you think it just keeps going on and on, and then I'll be there until I retire. Um, but then actually as you start to or as I started to get older I thought actually do you know what I do kind of want this to happen at some point and then there's always changes organisational changes going on and, and I thought you know maybe I'm going to get the chance and for me it, it was one of those things and I just you know at the time it was the pub that I went for and did you have a location in mind or were you out scouting around lo loads of lo loads of pubs and that sort of thing? Well, it's never a hard job to go looking at pubs, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> what did people say when I'm, I'm genuinely intrigued in, in their responses? When you said, I am leaving and I'm going to run a pub now, what were, what were the responses? What did people do? Were they kind of like impressed? I've always wanted to do something like that to take the leap or... Um, I think people were saying about me, you know, my family and friends thought, yeah, that is the right sort of thing for John to do. Yeah. You know, he is that sort of person. He's out there, he's out front, he'll enjoy that. Um, my work colleagues always knew that I was probably going to be, you know, one of some people that were going to do something completely different. Um, I think over time, the organisations you leave aren't the ones you join, and it's not that they're bad it's just they're not the one that you joined many years ago so you drift away from organizations and i think people saw actually john will probably go and do something a bit different um, and that's what i've done are there any similarities between working in an hr role and running a pub and if there are can you tell me what they are well i do draw on some of the detail that i never really needed to know before so this morning i've run payroll now i had a team of people that ran payroll for a hundred thousand people i now have to sit there and understand all of the um, enrollment processes um i now kind of manually sit there and put the hours in i mean i have a payroll package but it's the ability to kind of understand some of those things as a small business owner that does help me um, I think some of the ways that I have to deal with customers um, is definitely something that I was able to kind of learn from both all my time at the bank in a way, but of course in HR, you coach people to be able to deal with people in difficult circumstances. So that's something that has definitely helped me when I've had some of the trickier customers to deal with. Um, when it's all about kind of setting boundaries, um, getting people to understand, you know, you, you, you need their money, you need their customer at the end of the day, um, just as you'd want an employer to continue to work for you, but you do have to clearly say this is how these things have to be done and managed. And it's kind of negotiating those things um, with them as well. So there'll be technical aspects of it. Um, and then of course, it, it's unbelievable to say, but line managing people in a completely different environment is, is just so different. I was used to a very big corporate environment where you kind of asked people to do things, they did things, they had scorecards, etc. I don't know, it might sound silly now, but I've got seven staff, and for me it's having to learn to manage people in a completely different way <laughs> to them, you know. It's important I have a list of things to do. Whereas, of course, I was in an environment where people were rewarded on finding things to do to improve, continuous improvement, all of those things. So it's quite different. It is quite different um, as well. So there were things that kind of transfer over the general management skills that I learned, which is now obviously core to HR now. You know, you, you do have to do that as part of kind of being a professionally qualified person. That's what has brought an enormous amount to me um, in terms of being able to run my own business. And I always feel like, kind of with the landlord and the HR professional, 
there is almost a parallel in that, that they're that kind of confessional figure. People will say things to their HR manager and also to their pub landlord that they might not say to anyone else, especially after a few pints have come into play. Um, uh, what's worse for you, listening to regulars complaining about their lives or having to manage formal complaints from people who are on your staffing team as an HR manager? <laughs> I think because listening to my customers, they're real people and I'm not there to solve the problems, I'm there to listen. I may hear the same story many times, <laughs> particularly late of an evening. I do think, though, um, when I was obviously dealing with those things more transactionally in a work environment, particularly when the volume came through, I did feel as though it was a bit of an engine just churning over. So um, it was just trying to make sure that the human element was always still there. Um, which would I rather be doing? Well, I'd be lying if I said I would, I would, <laughs> I would rather be preferred chatting to people over the bar. I mean, that's definitely kind of what I would prefer to be doing. I think the phrase that I used at the beginning was to be the conscience of an organisation. Um, organisations are driven, predominantly nearly all of them, to make money. Um, whatever you do, that is normally the driver. You've got shareholders you have to deal with, and that will typically drive the bottom line. And that drives numbers because that's what delivers it. Um, I think, therefore, it makes it very easy for people just to think, I do this, I go through ABC, job done. But it's about being the conscience, being the person that will challenge, being the person that was that feels as though they're in an environment where they can challenge. And if they can't, as hard as it is to say, try and create that environment. And if you can't create the right environment, then move to another one. Because otherwise, I think you would become very, very frustrated. Um, but you've got to be proud in what you do. A lot of people said to me, John, how could you have done the job you did in the last few years, which was supporting thousands of people losing their jobs? And people kind of think, that you must be a nasty chap to do that. And I say, no, actually, bad things have to be done. It's just doing them in the best possible way. And if you can get your head around that as an HR professional and realise that you're making those things, even when somebody's right or wrong in the organisation, they deserve to be treated in the best possible way. And that is what I think you need to hang on to. So I'm just going to flip that advice actually now on its head. Is there anything that you think the pub trade and industry could use or benefit from in terms of human resources advice? I think you've got to remember that the only thing that makes people come to your pub versus others is simply the service they're going to get. So you can apply that in banking, you can apply that into the pub trade as well. So you do have to think about making sure your customers are very... Um, focused on the customer, customer centric would have been words you would have used in the past, you know, if you were in a corporate world, but of course it's difficult because they also have to police the environment so it's that balance between them being able to um, say no to a customer, I'm not serving you anymore versus them being able to manage the repercussions of that, and that is a skill set that I think is often not um, considered properly, so if you think about the last time you went into a bar, if you had a drink thrown at you there wasn't a smile at, you know, when, the, when it was delivered to you, you probably won't go back to that pub again um, so those are some of the things I think you do need to think about. I also think about there are different ways to motivate, motivate and reward your staff as well. I think in the pub trade most people think you give pay someone the minimum wage and, and that's what they will do. People don't share what the success of the business can be. So now my team are quite interested in understanding um, how much money we do take. It's not a secret because if they wanted to count what was in the till, they could. So I'm not divulging anything that you wouldn't want them to know. But they're more interested now, you know, it was Patrick's Day on Saturday. How many pints of Guinness did we sell? How many baby Guinness did we sell? Um, and they're quite interested to know, was that our busiest day? What's the busiest hour of the week? So those things that historically may have come from, you know, performance or productivity element of HR are things that you can bring in 
to a small business like this and actually will motivate people. And my team are more motivated. You know, that small little team at the end of a shift on a Saturday night do want to know how did we do? Yeah. Rather than actually, well, I've, I've earned my £7.50 now and now I'm going to go. So, looking forward to the future, do you think you are going to stick with the pub or could you ever be tempted back into the profession? I don't think I'll go back into the corporate world. Um, I think that that has kind of passed. Obviously, I still see jobs kind of float. People do still ring me up. I haven't dropped off of the uh, networks completely yet. My challenge at the moment is trying to decide how much of this is a lifestyle versus how much of it is a business. Now, it has to be a combination of both. I could choose to say, OK, I can buy a few more pubs and make it, make it you know, a larger business. But actually part of what I want to do is the lifestyle. I want to be able to talk to people, enjoy people, as you say, you know, listen to all of their woes. And I chose a, a local village pub with all the characters that go with it. Um, I didn't choose a big chain. And one of the benefits is it's my place. I don't work for a brewery, you know, it, it's just mine. And that's a great feeling. To end this show, we turn as ever to Tim's Pointers with Tim Pointer. Please welcome our resident agony uncle. He's like Dear Deirdre, but with slightly less explicit content. Founder of Starboard Thinking, Tim Pointer. My word, after an introduction like that, uh, my, my, my mind is uh, as a flutter. I've had a very interesting start to my day. So I have three children, the eldest of whom is 12. And I started the day, I often start the day, having a slightly monosyllabic conversation with her, there are normally mobile phone crimes being committed, <laughs> possibly by both of us during this during this sort of you know pre-breakfast conversation. Um, uh, this morning, her French exchange partner is over for a week, so I was having a uh, the the usual monosyllabic chat, but in two languages. It was a stretch for my for my pre-caffeinated brain. It's hard to do anything like that at, before nine in the morning, <laughs> even in English. So I sympathise with you fully. So our listener says, having recently taken voluntary redundancy to broaden my experience beyond the education and the public sector, I want to remain part time. Uh, the difficulty I'm having is not only in transferring to another sector, but also finding a high quality, flexible role that meets my aspirations. Uh, I'm currently investigating freelance work, but could you give me any other advice for making this happen? So struggling to find a role that balances professional aspirations with the ability to work in a flexible way is a very common concern for people across loads of different sectors. What do you think organisations should be doing to create high quality, flexible roles in the workplace today? I'd say firstly, it's a mindset challenge. We are so focused in too many organisations on the input. We're focused on presenteeism. Can I see you? Can I see you during the following hours? Am I aware that I can see you having conversations with people rather than being focused on the output, on the quality of the work, on the progress of the project, on the application of your expertise? So we have to start from you know, shifting our focus on is the work getting done, um, the, quality of the, uh, the quality of the output across the, uh, across the team? That is, that is fundamentally where it starts from. And then we get into the fact that tomorrow's world is going to be a much more rich mix of different types of employment. And those organisations that can grasp that quickly will succeed faster than their competitors because they will be able to get the right mix of talent into their organisations. We keep talking about the gig economy without really understanding what that's going to mean in terms of bringing talent in when we need it, having the relationships with talent when they're inside and outside our organisations, 
but also being less, I suppose, formal about the way we think about who's in our tribe and who's not. We think about who's in the gang. We think about who our employees are. We need to break down some of those boundaries and think about who have been our, our employees who we really valued, who might be able to work freelance for us, who hasn't worked for us yet, but we'd like to ask their advice on something. I really believe that it is more now about engaging a network than an individual because you're thinking about not just I'm not just seeking to employ you I'm thinking about everybody that you know yeah. everybody that you can connect into when you face a challenge when we face a challenge that we don't know the answer to and I think ultimately there has to be a big cultural shift in the way that organizations are thinking about the way we work which uh, will mean managers saying to their staff and their teams yes I trust that you're at home I trust that you are working at home and not just messing around doing your laundry on my time yeah I think trust is absolutely the center of of so many challenges at the moment. And for a lot of leaders, and speaking of someone in their mid-40s, you know, a lot of leaders who have gone through this experience, it's not how we were led. Those who trained so many of today's leaders came from a very command and control background. Even some of our language itself betrays us. When we talk about line managers, we're referring back to post-industrial revolution production lines where we were watching our workers doing fundamentally the same thing. Now, at a time of the digital revolution, it is so much more about the talent, the network, and our ability to coach, encourage, and enable one another. It's all about connection and, and collaboration. And at the heart of that is the trust question. So based on that, what advice would you give to someone who is looking for a high-quality, flexible part-time role? To succeed in today's workplace and tomorrow's landscape, it's so much about network. And that means it's about reputation. You have to build a really strong network, both online and offline, so that people know what your skills and capabilities are, what your aspirations are, and what you can contribute to their organisation. So very simple actions. Think about the way that you're portraying yourself. So let's start online. Is it appropriate that you set up your own website? Is it appropriate that you focus on your LinkedIn persona? Is it appropriate that you think about Twitter and the way that you're then engaging with the many networks and communities that are out there? Get your voice into the, into the conversation. And then offline, there are so many networking groups. There are so many opportunities to go out and learn and so many that are free. And so there's an awful lot of opportunities to go out and to meet new people and just learn, which is a fantastic way to live a life, right? Yeah. But also to then network and say, well, this is what I'm seeking to focus on at the moment. This is the learning that I'm seeking to bring. What's happening in your organisation? Start a conversation. If you have a question for the next editions of Tim's Pointers, head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. And that's it for this edition of That HR Podcast. My thanks to Tim Pointer, John Housecroft-Stemp, Charles Cotton and Tally Schlong. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and, of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Feel free to rate us and leave your nicest comments. My name is Emily Burt. The producer was Chika Ayers at Rethink Audio. And until next time, keep on minding that gender pay gap.